Hello, this is Michael, and welcome to the Dreadcore. Just a quick um, prologue. Uh, as, uh, as it was to this episode. This episode was originally recorded for episode three of our uh, main show, uh, Jab Empire. This was for Tangent Within, Tangent Without, which focused on the Iron Warriors. Um, it was, uh, it's an interview with Robbie McNiven, uh, the author, um, from Black Library, who's done the, um, who's done quite a, quite a lot of stuff with, uh, Black Library. And we do talk a bit about the Black Library submissions window, which has now actually passed. So, um, Unfortunately, if you if you get excited and think I want to put in a story after listening to this, I'm sorry, it's a bit out of date. The reason why we've taken this interview out and put it into a dreadclaw is we've had a few requests from people who don't listen to our main show who said I want to listen to this interview with Robbie McNiven. I'm just not going to listen to a five hour podcast. Um, so hence we've taken it out and popped it into a separate dreadclaw show, but. Black Library do have submissions windows, so there will be another one eventually. And if you're feeling inspired, it gives you a lot more time to prepare your story. So here is our my interview with Robbie McNiven. Okay, guys. So uh, I'm joined on the uh, line with uh, Robbie McNiven. Um, the I, I am pronouncing that correct, aren't I? I, I usually yes, st- spot on, spot on. I usually say, I, I have this tendency to sl- to to absolutely decimate Scottish names. <laughs> no, there there was actually some debate apparently at uh, Black Library as to how to pronounce my second name, but you got it right first time. It's ah, McNiven. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, and as you. <laughs> can guess from that he is a black library author um we have him on our, our heresy podcast here specifically because he wrote the most recent um perturabo uh, primarchs audio drama stone and iron um which was really great um Thank so you. we thought we'd get him on and ask him a few questions uh about you know him and uh being a, a black library author um and uh, uh obviously the iron warriors as well so um how are you today then robbie I'm great, thanks. I'm great. Just uh, working away in the hopes that I can have a relatively quiet weekend, but uh, we'll see how the rest of the, the day goes. That's the problem with being a writer. You don't really finish at five. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I suppose not. No, I was speaking to, I, I spoke to many authors because uh, I go to a lot of writing conventions. Not because right. I'm a writer, just because I like reading. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that, that is one thing that some, some authors say, you know, you don't, it's not a nine to five job. It's a it is a something you do all the time because you never stop thinking. Yeah, it's it's ups and downs because, you know, it's fun not having to get up at, you know, half seven, eight in the morning. And at the same time, like you say, you kind of never switch off. So it gets some getting used to, but uh, I don't know. Some people prefer it. I, I think I do prefer it. So, yeah, I guess I hope I just get to carry on doing what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, so we'll start off with you. If you could tell us a little bit about your, yourself and your background so uh, people yeah, get so an idea of who you are. Um so I am, um, well, I'm half Scottish, half English. Uh, I was born in Venice. Uh, I'm 25, about to be 26 next month. And I'm currently, for my sins, doing a PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I've been here at uni now for eight years. So I'm a bit of a um, uniholic, I suppose. I did uh, my undergrad here in history 
and English language joint, and then I did a master's in war studies at Glasgow University, and then I came back to Edinburgh for the PhD, which is now supposedly in its final year. This is my third year doing it, but uh, most PhDs tend to overrun a bit, so um, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm here for a bit longer. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah they, they, they do tend to. And then they, they do. And then the viver, and you've got to go back and redo bits. And... I know. It's all scary stuff. It's um, making stuff up in the 41st millennium is considerably uh, less stressful, to be honest. <laughs> I can um, imagine. So, so yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, yeah, I guess you could say that I do a lot of writing because I'm I'm doing my back library stuff, which is more or less full-time at this point, and also juggling it with PhD at the same time. But uh, I'm not complaining because, like I said, I don't have a nine to five, so I don't have to get up at half seven every day. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> okay, so um, so when you were growing up, did you want to be an author, or was it just something you kind of fell into? Or um, I'd say yes. I think probably from the age of about uh, nine or ten. Um, I certainly knew I enjoyed writing stories. Um, mm. Where that came from is I don't really know. I think. Um, my mum was, you know, very into storytelling and books and would always read to me every night before I went to sleep, you know, for as long as I could remember growing up. So I guess it's one of those classic, I was around books all the time as a kid. Um, so I guess I, it was just sort of ingrained into me right from the beginning that I had an interest in storytelling. I was always that annoying kid in school when it came to uh, creative writing. I was enjoyed doing those classes and was getting, you know, teacher prizes and stuff like the big nerd that I am. <laughs> um and yeah obviously i enjoy reading so it in a sense i guess it, it follows naturally from that i sort of combined the two um i entered my first uh writing competition when i was 13 uh, it was actually a black library one so i think we'll probably come to that later on oh, yeah yeah but uh so yeah i sort of was was doing that right from the off more or less and um yeah it's a hobby before it's a job really which i think is the best way to go about it because i've always enjoyed doing it and the idea is that i just i would be writing whether i was getting paid or not so being able to do it as a bit of a job is an extra bonus but yeah i'd say that it's pretty fair to say that i've sort of always wanted to be an author yeah yeah so obviously you mentioned there your first competition was a black library one when you were 13 and so mm -hmm. so you've been into the hobby for quite some time so what was your gateway into the universe um, it was actually a little pamphlet that was given to me by a family member. I think I was seven at the time, um, and it was a very basic games workshop. Um, this was back in oh, 1998, I think, roughly. So it was about third edition 40K, and I'm not sure, fifth edition Warhammer Fantasy. Sounds about and right. it, was, it was a little uh, pamphlet that was just listed all the factions. Um, and I, I don't know if I got models with it or i bought them soon afterwards but i very quickly acquired some little bretonian um men at arms and knights and literally just splattered paint all over them and i guess it just went from there i started getting uh, white dwarves um uh, which were you know very engrossing as a kid growing up and yeah it, it steamrolled from there really yes yeah, a similar way i got into it i i had um uh combat cards from woolworths ah. oh nice that had the leaflet in it and it was sort of right. like, these are fantastic. I want to get some of these. Yeah, um, there's so. um, all sorts of stories from that era where, you know, it's kind of a little thing that, that hooks someone and then they just end up getting totally sucked into it. So well done to the Games Workshop marketing team of the 90s. Definitely. They obviously so, did a good job. Are, do you still play Bretonians or, or oh, what, they, I, um, what they're called now? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it is. 
No, my, um, I suppose, yeah, the Bretonians were my first models, but the first sort of army I dedicated or collected was uh, Vampire Counts. Ah. Uh, I think the second White Dwarf I ever got was when their fifth edition army book came out. I think actually it was the first ever army book they got because before that they were just undead. Um, sort yeah. of as an something like that anyway um so i did them for a long time and then when oh i'm forgetting my editions but gav thorpe did a the hordes of chaos army book for warhammer oh yeah which was um i just love that when i read that because it's got loads of sort of background in it and it's really engrossing so i from there sort of started the chaos army which got huge um about the same time i was doing imperial guard in 40k and obviously space marines of all different shades because you know who doesn't have space marines at some point in their life yeah, that's very true um, but yeah, sadly, the actual hobby itself, I've not really done much hobbying for a couple of years now. Um, I keep saying I'm going to get back into it, but I'm so busy writing for the hobby, I sometimes forget to paint for the hobby. So I wanted to get some uh, Age of Sigmar maggot kin, but we shall see. We shall see. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, uh, uh, time on your st- on your studies will be... Uh... Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. There's um, a fun little gaming group here at uh, the university, which uh, I was in for a couple of years uh, but yeah, work kind of crept up on me. But hopefully, at some point, I will get back to it. We shall see. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so, um, what was the first book you ever had published? Um, the first story. Wait, are we talking um, no, Black no, Library in, 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 in general? In, uh, in my first life. one was uh, <laughs> right. Red Blade. It was yes, <laughs> you know that. Well done. Um, yeah, the first story I ever had published was. Uh, I was 18 or 19. I think it was it was first year at university, uh, 2010 or early 2011, and it was a short story called Heaven Bloom, which was um, vaguely steampunky, set in a sort of um, fantasy sci-fi crossbreed mm. universe um, where it was all about sort of like biplanes, and they were fighting over these uh, rock formations that floated in the sky. It was all very, you know, sort of out there in terms of ideas but uh and i think i got paid about five dollars for it so um <laughs> yeah it was uh humble beginnings but i mean most writers can't expect any sort of buck for the first thing they get published it was you know it was a small press it was someone online i don't think they even function anymore it was more or less just a case of you know it got published online and i got paid a tiny amount for it um i did a sequel i think but uh yeah, I was toying about with that when I started university, thinking that, you know, I've been writing for fun for a while now. Maybe I should think about trying to make something of it. And, uh, yeah, that was the first sort of outing. Nice. And how was it seeing your name in uh, on a book for the first, uh, you know, a published book, even if it was only yeah. a web book? <laughs> oh, it was great. No, it was, it was really great. Um, like I said, it was about as small time as you can get, but it was definitely sort of the first step in terms of changing my own mindset from this is something I enjoy as a hobby to, I'd actually like to pursue this as a career. So yeah, it definitely galvanized me. Okay. Um, this one, uh, they now on the forums, <laughs> they refer to you as the shark guy. Is that a name you you like or? It, yeah, it, it works for me. I like sharks. I think they're pretty cool. Um, my editor at Black Library hates sharks. So that's, uh, that's a bit of a struggle, but nice. um <laughs> Yeah, and I think they're uh, they're interesting animals. I think I think that I'm right in saying they don't they can't get cancer, which sounds like a weird fun fact, but you can throw that out at parties. Yeah. I think there's people always doing research into um, how that is the case and whether you know that can provoke some sort of cure for us. But uh, that's by the by. Yeah, I think I think they're cool animals, and I guess shark guy is you know resident because I write about space sharks, which 
I'm perfectly proud of. So yeah, it's it's not something I'm shying away from. I don't think many people have written about them beforehand. So yeah, yeah, there was only one short story published officially, I think, um, by David Annandale uh, quite a few years back, and I think it was literally only about a thousand words. So. Um, yeah, I guess that makes me the shark guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose it's, it's nice as well because it's allowed you to really put your own stamp on on a chapter. Yeah, definitely. It's something that uh, there's not actually that many chapters that occupy this interesting sphere where there's very little written about them, but they're definitely, you know, people know they exist. They're not completely homebrew. I've not just come up with them off the bat. So it's actually quite a privilege to get a chapter that exists quite definitely in the law like that, but at the same time only has the very basic framework and that offers you the chance to construct an identity around it. Of course, the flip side of that is it's quite intimidating because you don't want to, you know, you want to do, do right by them and make sure that what you come up with is correct with the law in the background mm-hmm. and it's not you know, cheesy or, silly or anything like that so there's a bit of stress in it that sense but yeah okay um one of the things that i have noticed and i think a lot of other fans have noticed is you're one of the authors of black library that really sort of interacts with the fans a great deal i mean was that something you did purposely or was it just something that, that came to you naturally or was... um it's 90 percent, i suppose you could say natural i um the tumblr account i started specifically because i knew i was getting published by Black Library, and I was like, well, you know, I, this could be a good platform. I um, actually already have one dedicated to my history studies, so I knew how to use it and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And I thought that this could be a good way to share things. I don't think there's many other. I think um, Josh Reynolds has a Tumblr blog, and actually Nick Kime does, but he hasn't updated it for a few years. So, no, no. Um, so starting that specifically was a deliberate sort of, this would be a good way to interact with people. But generally, the interacting itself simply comes about because I transitioned so smoothly from being a fan to an author, it didn't occur to me to really um, change my approach when I got published, Uh, beyond the fact that obviously I now can't talk about stuff uh, that I know about. And, you know, there's certain conversations that uh, are best left alone if you're someone with an official capacity. But all of that aside, yeah, I'm just... uh, a fan like everyone else and genuinely still think of myself as one. So interacting with people and getting excited about things and talking about stuff is, yeah, it's something that I enjoy doing and that I don't think needs to change, hopefully. Awesome. Um, do you have any interesting writing quirks that, that you do? You know, um, I know some people try to put in, I don't know, characters with certain initials into their works. Or, <laughs> uh, do you have any quirks like that? Or? Um... I normally try and slip in a TF2 reference somewhere. Team Fortress 2, that is, because nice. I, I, love, I love that game so much. I'm a total addict, even after, I don't know, I've had it for about eight years now, but I still play it. Still haven't played Overwatch, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, so beyond that, you know, I, I tend not to try and go too hard on the Easter eggs. Um, but yeah, something, something small like that might get slipped in. Uh, in terms of actual writing itself, probably... I actually find that having studied history so much and uh, the genre I actually read most widely is historical fiction rather than sci-fi, which might be surprising. But um, all of the history research means that I quite often find myself 
you know, if I'm describing a battle, I'll often do quite a God's eye view of it, which is almost textbook-ish. And my editors sometimes have to slap my wrist and say, could we please have this more from character point of view as opposed to you giving us the history of, I don't know, the Siege of the Eternity Gate or something like that. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I work to edit those things out. Sweet. Um, okay. Um, when it comes to your writing, is it something that energizes you or does it exhaust you? I mean, when I go to EasterCon every year, um, mm-hmm. something a lot of authors say, say you know, it, it comes from them they differently, you know, it affects them in different ways. Some of them, it really gets them going and they can't stop yeah. or others. It's, it's a, it's a quite something that quite wears them down. Um, it's a little bit of both as you might expect. Certainly the start of a project I find is vital because, um i'll go into it being very buoyed up and excited and wanting to get to work and the idea is that i write as much with that mindset as i can before it starts becoming a slog which it does sort of inevitably and regardless of how long it is it's it's strange if i'm given you know uh word short story to write then the first three to four thousand will be done very quickly because you know i'm excited to write it and then the last two or three thousand might be a bit of a struggle because i feel like i've been doing it for a while even if it's say a week but then the same thing will happen over the course of a novel so i'll do the first 20 30 thousand words pretty easily and then the remaining 20 30 thousand at the ends after the halfway marker a bit of a, a bit of a struggle but i think that's that's fairly standard and the way i get around that is i actually tend to write non-sequentially so i plan it out and then i'll often write the ending around the middle because i know that if i leave the ending till the end I'll be a bit burned out and I don't want to write the ending when I'm burned out because it's literally the most important part of the story. So it deserves to sort of be written when I'm at my peak. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I think it's fairly unusual to do. Most people just write in order. It does depend on actually having a um, a plan, which I, I tend to fairly thoroughly plot out stories. Uh, not all of it. Some people do the whole thing, but uh, I leave a bit of leeway for, for adaptation. Um when it comes to editing, I actually tend to find that quite easy. Um, I'm not sure why, but I seem to be when I, you know, if I'm reading back through a story um, and applying changes, that literally can take normally no more than a week, um, even if it's the sort of work that my editors are saying, oh, this is probably going to take about a month. It just doesn't for some reason. So I guess that is a positive. Oh, that's that's pretty good, yeah. Because a lot of writers I speak to, they, you know, that they're, they're sort of like the worst part for them is the editing. Yeah, um, yeah. That, it's interesting to hear that. Um, it is difficult when you have to chop stuff out that you don't want to chop out, which is inevitable because that's part of the process. Um, I I don't know. I it, maybe it sounds strange, but I guess I I quite like my writing style. So when I read my own stuff, I quite enjoy it. Um, after I've you know edited a bit, I mean, there's definitely times when I read it and I think, oh dear god how how have i done this this is going to take so long to bring up to standard which i think is very normal for all writers but um i find my own writing flows fine when i read it back which i guess just eases the whole process for me personally that's not so bad i mean i i I, I, yeah i've spoken to who was it um i can't remember it was a black library author who said they Mm -hmm. can't stand their own writing style (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean i i hear that a lot from from all sorts of writers they say uh, i think it's sort of in vogue for a writer to say oh i can't stand my own work it's you know i just have to put up with it and my editor uh, helps the, with the it you know, style. exactly it's stylish to be like that <laughs> which is fair enough but uh and like i said there's definitely times when i worry about my own stuff i 
uh, have sort of writer's blindness, I call it, where I genuinely cannot tell whether what I've written is absolutely terrible or amazing until firstly the editors give me feedback and then people who've read it, you know, where it is released to the public give me feedback. Um, yeah, it's it's very strange. I will not be confident generally about a story one way or another until it's actually out there and people tell me what they think of it and then I go, oh, yeah, so, you know, it's that and that and that and that. It's, it's very weird. Ah. Okay. Um, now, you also wrote the um, novelization for um, Dawn of War 3. So that yes. was that was quite... I mean, how was that compared to writing a normal novel? Because it's sort of like, I don't know, a game is sort of like very... It's a very open-ended thing. Yes. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, yeah, it's a very open-ended kind of thing. And it's sort of like you're sort of taking that story down one road, whereas the players get to go down various different roads. I mean, does that... Yeah. I, I, I don't know how that sort of factors into the writing or if it doesn't at all or... No, no, it's it's an interesting one, definitely. And it is um, a bit different from the sort of standard novel setup you'd have. I was actually asked to write that in part because um, it was my third novel that I'd ever written, all of them for Black Library. Uh, and the first one I'd done was Legacy of Russ, which was a tie-in to the Warzone Fenris campaign. Yeah, it was it, it released in the different parts, yes. Exactly. So um, it was the sequel to David Annandale's first one, which was, um, oh, I forgot. Uh, something about the Wolfen. Curse of the Wolfen. There we go. So yes. uh, because I was writing, I was writing that to a very specific brief. I didn't come up with it. Um, Black Library slash Games Workshop came to me and said, this is what's happening. This is the first book. They actually did give me quite a lot of leeway in between the start and the finish, which was set as to what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um but beyond that, it was, you know, it was, please write this. And Dawn of War 3 was basically the same. Red Tithe, which I wrote in between the two, was entirely my own invention. But they came to me when Dawn of War 3 was first being considered and said, because you did um, Legacy of Russ, uh, following the brief as you did, you could probably handle Dawn of War 3, which I thought was amazing because I loved Dawn of War. And... Yeah, the process was, in a way, there's things that are better and more difficult. So, in a sense, it's strangely liberating to be given more or less the plot, which might sound strange uh, and definitely wouldn't be every writer's cup of tea. But to be given it sort of in a solid framework already knocked together is quite good because then you can still tease out bits of it that you want to Mm -hmm. play with, but you've got, um, you literally have the framework there. So it's more comforting and you're not saying, you know, oh, I'm missing all of these plot points that I should be including and things like that. Um, It was probably the two biggest struggles were that firstly, uh, Relic was developing the game at the same time I was writing it. So occasionally things would change when they went back and revised stuff. Ah. which I would then obviously have to revise in in the the story. Um, And the other issue was, which you already hinted at, just the fact that it's a computer game, not uh, a novel. It has a storyline, but the storyline for computer games are obviously different from novel storylines because Mm -hmm. the game's based around, I'm not sure how many it was, say a dozen or two dozen missions where you are killing stuff. And obviously there's variations of what you're killing and how you're killing and what you're trying to achieve in these missions. But ultimately you're still building the base, killing stuff. It's the game mechanics. That's what the game exists for. It takes you through step by step like that. Whereas the novel is, I can't have 20 chapters of killing stuff, right? 
Yeah, um, yeah there's got to be some, <laughs> yeah, know, some normal even, stuff. Exactly. Even sort of the heaviest killy 40k novels aren't constantly killing stuff. So I had to cut down on the killing in a sense. There were missions that were basically chopped out um, that, you know, if they didn't really serve the storyline, then they were cut um, for the novel. I think more or less it, it fairly faithfully follows what, what happens in the game. But yeah, there has to be a little bit of, of tweaking going on there to make it work in, in that format. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I found it fine personally. It was uh, definitely an interesting experience. And it was a great honor to get to write for it. So yeah. yeah. Did you have any impact, impact on the game storyline or? No. Um, <laughs> I don't think so anyway. No, there were just, there were various things like um, initially they had Death Watch in one of the missions and then the Death Watch were out again and then they were back in again. Um, I think that in the game, I think they're led by a space wolf, but I initially wrote them in and then thought they'd been taken out. So I thought, well, I'm just going to leave them in because they don't have a massive plot point difference. So I changed their leader to a homebrew chapter that I made up. And then it turned out that they were actually back in the game at the end. So that's why <laughs> they're not led by a space wolf. They're led by a shadow haunter, but st- stuff like that, you know, is, is little tweaks, but no, I'm, I'm didn't have any sort of impact in the actual plot itself. All right. Okay. Um, now, have you actually ever read any other sort of books that actually made you think differently about how you write the fiction for Black Library? Um, I'd say that, yes, reading books have a massive impact on my inspiration. I'm not sure if it's, uh, I think it's a more of a subconscious thing than a, a conscious thought. I don't sort of read a book and say, oh, I should do this and this and this and this because of this and this. I say, recently I read Warmaster and, you know, I want to write Imperial Guard. I guess I'm fairly easily influenced. But but yeah, I think books cause a massive sort of inspiration splurge. Um, I've recently been working on Age of Sigmar and because I've also been reading Age of Sigmar as research, it kind of creates this uh, vicious cycle where I want to do Age of Sigmar forever now. But uh, I'd say I'm, I'm easily influenced in terms of um, being inspired by things. But I don't think, you know, I don't read something and say I want to sort of copy that inspiration directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the same for when I wrote The Last Hunt, which was the, my White Scars novel. Uh, for research, I read Scars and Path of Heaven um the 30k i thought you Uh, might have i did and they're so good like they're literally some of my favorite heresy novels um and so they had a massive impact just in terms of geeing me up for the project giving me little things to work with um sort of flavoring the whole thing and making sure that it's really i wanted to make the white scars as unique and sort of white scar centric if that makes sense not just a carbon copy ultramarines painted white they definitely have this legacy stretching all the way back to the heresy with their unique culture so i really wanted to bring that out because i've read chris ray's work and that's so good so yeah i guess in that sense i get inspired awesome awesome um so you say you read a, b- a lot of a lot of books now one thing that i uh, when i was uh, when i was sort of asking questions how do you interview an author was told never to ask if they get writer's block so i was <laughs> wondering have you ever had reader's block Oh, interesting. So, um, <laughs> first off, I'm fine with writer's block questions, but <laughs> regardless, um, yes, I'd say that that's an interesting concept. And I'd say I have mainly because of the environment I'm in at university. I don't really get a lot of spare time for um, pleasure reading, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of my research, you know, I'm having to churn through a lot of uh, historical texts. Um 
and make sure that the PhD is up to scratch. I think, huh, I'm not sure my current like ratio of fiction to nonfiction. The last book I read that was fiction was Warmaster, uh, which was so amazing that I'm, it's hopefully going to spur me on to keep up my fiction side of things. But mm. because of where I'm at, there is definitely, a, I wouldn't say it's a danger, but it's sort of natural that at times I get fiction reading block because I'm doing so much nonfiction that I just don't have the time. And sometimes you just don't want to open a book you know, whether it's fiction or not after a day of um, slogging through the library. So, yeah, yeah I'd say I that. Can, I can see That's that. Yeah, awesome. Um, okay, so um, so obviously you said you don't have – it's not a nine-to-five job you have. So uh, um, how, how many hours a day would you say you tend to spend writing? Um, probably – I mean, it can vary massively, but probably – three to four hours, I think, uh, which doesn't sound like very much. Um, the problem is I intersperse it with a great deal of procrastination and other things. So it, it extends throughout the entire day. But that's sort of just the way that my routine works. I think all writers have their own routine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I also do tend to do that every single day. I don't take weekends off. I don't have the discipline for that, unfortunately. Um, right, yeah, some writers do. But yeah, I kind of do it every day. And then it does sound, you know, doing the same thing every single day for literally months on end can be pretty hefty. But I genuinely do find that when I take breaks, I don't need more than three or four days before I'm, you know, I actively want to start writing again. I have ideas and I want to put them down and get on with the work. So it, I don't think it's something that's slowly grinding me down over time. Right. Um, okay. I think, yeah, the three or so hours a day is about my, my right amount. In terms of word count, that's normally... I aim for between a thousand and two thousand. Um, a good day, I'll hit two thousand. A bad day, I'll hit one thousand. And I guess you know, an average day is one thousand five hundred, roughly. Uh, but again, all writers are different. I think Dan Abnett does three thousand words a day, just because you know he's a machine. <laughs> he is, uh, and I think Aaron Dembski Bowden does about five. Bless him. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, uh, he mocked me at the weekend because I stick to deadlines. Um, I, I'm not established enough yet to discourage my deadlines, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose not. Um, okay, so um, what's your favourite Black Library story that you've ever read? Uh, my favourite one, and uh, I will support this because I have the actual book itself in the Black Library Hall of Fame, which I think they do roughly every month where they ask an author to name a favourite book. So I, oh, I've have named you, have mine. Have you done yours one? Well, I done did one? mine, yeah. And, oh, um, I've, so I've I guess... That. No, no, I guess you can, um, if people want to check online, I can't remember actually where in the website you find it, but it's uh, Nailed My Colors to the Mast, uh, Double Eagle. It's just so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's, some, it's a bit it's a bit left of field because it is, it's just a spin-off to Gaunt's Ghosts, but, uh, and, you know, going into it, I was a bit doubtful. I was saying, oh, it's Imperial Navy, it's not the Guard, you know, it's just going to be as action-packed and fun, and my goodness, it's just so good um it's i think the, the strength of the character yeah yeah it's it's so different but the, it's the characterization which i've realized is what really is the underlying strength of if god's ghost it's the characters and their saga and especially with double eagle what i love about it is the crescendo of the plot line because you have um without spoilers there's about four different point of view characters and by the end they all come together uh these sort of uh storylines that aren't too closely related to one another um all climax together in this um well in the finale as mm. you'd expect which isn't as easy as it seems when you actually are plotting stuff out 
to make that work and to have all the characters still be believable and following their own believable storylines. So in that sense, I think it's a really good example of just a raw plot. But everything else, just the the ground up view of how the Imperial Navy or, well, actually in this case, it's the Imperial Guards because they're the one guard regiment with um, their airborne, in a sense. But uh, the ground up view of how they function and how, you know, the aerial combat works in the 41st millennium, which is so rarely seen as just so good. So I am very excited for the sequel, which hasn't been officially announced, but uh, Dan has said publicly that, you know, that and the um, Bequin uh, prior sequel are sort of on the horizon along with more Gorms Ghosts. So, yes, fingers crossed. Awesome. I, I was going to ask you what, what you thought the most underappreciated novel was, but you'd probably get to that one as well. Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess Double Eagle is a little bit underappreciated. I mean, I still, there are lots of fans that love it. Um, I often also cite Warriors of Ultramar, Graham McNeil. Oh, yeah. Which was the first Black Lider novel I ever read when I was 11, I think, or 12. And that also was just amazing because it's a tour de force in terms of how to write a good old-fashioned, straight up, this is a classic war between Ultramarines and Tyranids, but in at no point whatsoever does it feel sort of too action-orientated and it doesn't drag or anything like that. It's still got very strong characters and it's just a great romp if you want to see a classic sort of how-to-do-a-40k slugfest. Yeah. Um, it's definitely stood the test of time as well. So I'd say that's actually probably my favourite McNeil novel. Yeah, Graham's actually very good at getting that nice balance between, you know, the 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 um the action and the character. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um which is one thing I like about him. So um okay, so at the moment the, the Black Library submissions window is open and it's will be open when this episode goes out at the end of March, just. Um and you actually came I believe anyway, you came through the last batch during the Death Watch submissions window um, a while back. Is that yes. Yes, good. Um, well, sort of. <laughs> sort of. Ah. It's, an, it's an interesting one. I can expand on that. Um, yeah, so uh, the last official window was the Death Watch, which I did submit to. And I don't think anyone heard anything back about that beyond, yeah, I don't think there was any sort of uh, anything was made of it. However, what happened, ooh, it's nearly three years ago to the day. Um, yeah, three years ago on the Games Workshop website, not the Black Library one, they put up an advertisement for recruitment that they were hiring uh, Black Library authors, which is a strange way of doing it. They'd never done oh, that yeah, before. I remember that one, yeah. Um, which I also applied to. And... Uh, the all you had to do was send in sort of a cover letter saying why you wanted the job and they then responded if they liked it and said do uh, these two tests for us so they gave you two tests uh, to write about the first was you had to write about a space marine fighting an orc in 250 words and then the second one was you have to write about a scout sergeant briefing his scout squad just before a mission in 250 words so uh, i got the nod to do the tests as i know a bunch of other people did um so i wrote that up i did the uh, imperial fist fighting an orc in a breach and an ultramarine scout leader you know giving his his briefing and i sent those in and then the next thing i knew they said yeah welcome to the team which was not what I was expecting. I was sitting on the train coming back from Glasgow University at the time and read the email and just kind of stared at it for half an hour. Um, and then at the time, there was all sorts of uncertainty because, like I said, it wasn't really a traditional Black Library 
submissions period window, anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really sure if I was writing for Black Library, if I was writing for the studio, if I was going to be doing, you know, like little bits of color text. Um, I embarrassingly did ask whether I was going to be getting paid for it at any point, which they said, yes, it's the actual job. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I went in through the um, that sort of application process. Now, interestingly, the first story I was given was the Death Watch short story, Red Blade, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still don't know to this day whether there's a connection between uh, whether they asked for the Death Watch stories sort of looking to segue people into writing those if they were hired um, or not. I think, coincidentally, I did actually write about Space Wolf in that Death Watch submission window. Oh. But, uh, I did I did ask sort of off the cuff and was told that it was simply based on the fact that I'd sort of given a good cover letter CV thing and then did fine in the test. So apparently it's as easy as that. Um, and, yeah, I don't really know more about the process beyond that. But, yeah, that's how I ended up doing it. And, yeah, here I am. Yeah, because I was going to ask, is that is Red Blade the story that you pitch? But obviously, uh, no. Um, no, no that's, that's, you, that's cool. No, you actually, it uh, reminds me, I feel like I should go and try and dig up that story and see what it was like. All I remember is there was a space wolf and someone else at Death Watch in a forest fighting cast space rings. It was something pretty basic. Um, and like I said, I don't really know what became of that window because it, I don't think anyone really discussed it much. And the next thing you knew, it was only about three months later, we had this... Um, just a call for, you know, employment, basically. Because it's just, it was listed alongside all the, you know, we need a, a new manager, a Games Workshop, whatever, Plymouth, stuff like that. You know, it's just the normal list of uh, places that you could, uh, that were hiring in Games Workshop. So it was just there under, you know, Black Library author. So, mm. yeah. Okay, that's actually really fascinating. So, awesome. Um yeah. So, uh, all right. So, um, so you wrote about, so obviously you had put your pitches forward, um, and never heard back from, but got the job another way. Uh, yeah, I, I'd actually been pitching, um, like I said, since I was 13. So, uh, I think the first story was the cold hand of betrayal, which was a Warhammer anthology way back in like 2006, or something like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, be- because the windows are open, roughly once a year i think i've entered about 10 or at least i've been trying for about a decade uh before i got that sort of that final break there um so yeah i suppose the moral of that story is just keep going because uh, i think once before when i was about 15 they said that one of the stories i'd pitched had been to quote not too shabby which was encouraging um But besides that, yeah, it was just a case of, you know, you didn't really have anything to lose. You just, it doesn't take a great deal of work to knock up a, a pitch. You know, it's a month or two of thinking about it and writing it. Um, and like everyone, I think I overthought it a lot. Everyone seems to, you know, try and strive to make every single sentence absolutely perfect. Whereas, you know, you should do that. But at the same time, there's only so much you can do in terms of perfection. It's just about letting go at some point. So, yeah, the the entry itself isn't particularly strenuous in terms of workload. So, you know, I was just doing that every year, not really thinking about it, genuinely not thinking towards the end that I was ever going to get in because it would just become a bit of a tradition, really, submitting mm. just about every um, But, yeah, then it, it worked unexpectedly. So there we go. Awesome. So, so you'd advise any budding authors to pop their submissions in? Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, if you don't know, sorry, if you don't try, you won't know. Um, it's, it's literally 
a case of just keeping at it and it will genuinely probably take years before you get noticed i mean uh like i said the first one that i submitted to when i was 13 um i'm pretty sure i submitted a warhammer 40,000 story for what was specifically a warhammer fantasy submission <laughs> although well, I seem to remember reading later on that actually a lot of people have done that and the, the guidelines weren't clear. So I'm going to say that it's not my fault. But yeah, you make mistakes and, um, you know, it, it won't go your way nine times out of ten. But you genuinely just have to keep up with it. And the only thing that's stopping you over time, if you keep going, is your own ability to sustain um, the passion and the desire to get where you want to be. Hmm. So awesome advice, really. So um, when you, you actually write a, a, a novel or story for Black Library, um, what do you go to them with an idea or do they come to you with what they want written or is it something in between? I mean, you already alluded to, you know, you, you got a brief with Curse of Fenris and uh, not Curse of Fenris. Yeah, Curse of Curse of the Wolf was David Annadale's one. Yes, and Legacy of Russ is my one. And then, just to make it even more confusing, they've combined them into an anthology called Legacy of the Wolfen. <laughs> yes, that's 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 right. <laughs> um, awesome. So, so, so you've already sort of alluded that you've got a, a very much guideline with that and Dawn of War. So, uh, what is it for the rest of your books? Do you, are you more free, or do you go to them with ideas, or do they? Um, it's a mixture, but genuinely, or generally these days, it's more you approach them with an idea. Now, uh, I think other authors have talked previously that the studio for a while was more focused on asking us to write stuff to tie in with releases. So, yeah. um, wasn't Fenris is the perfect example of that. They wanted the fiction to back up the sort of the modeling and the gaming, which they were expanding upon. Um, but I think not long after that, the, there was a bit of a sea change and it went back to, um, Black Library saying to authors, what would you like to write for us? Go for it if they think it's good enough, uh, which I think supposedly they realized that Gaunt's Ghosts might never have been written if they'd adopted this policy of only writing very specific tie-in for releases. So I think that opened a few eyes. And uh, yeah, the, the policy is more or less we submit uh, genuinely anything that we think is cool. And then sometimes we get told no and sometimes yes. Uh, and they do also have um, the reverse instances, like I said, uh, Dawn of War 3, where, you know, they come to you with a story. It's the same in a slightly less rigid framework, because obviously Dawn of War 3 was very specific. We need this for the game. But um, my next novel after the next Karkaradon one, uh, Blood of Ajax, which is about uh, Ultramarines Primaris, was suggested to me. It was a case of, we think this would be pretty cool to have. It's not absolutely necessary, but we're probably going to look for a writer to write about, you know, a, a Primaris-centric story or series of stories so if you want to do that if you've got ideas for that then pitch it to us and we'll see where it goes and you know i thought that sounded cool so i was like yeah i'll do them so that's where that one's come from it's a bit of both i guess uh, initially their idea but me running with stuff after that is that so, the one they put is that the, the prequel to that is that the one they put on the chat book exactly yes yes i haven't read yeah. it yet but yeah, it's the one about um, a Primaris apothecary and chaplain who are also blood brothers. They, so they were actually brothers before they were recruited into the Ultramarines. So ah. hopefully that's a lot of fun because it obviously is offering a lot of interesting, um, well, something a bit different for the norm because we've not really seen 
too many stories specifically from either Chaplin or an apothecary's point of view. So I'll be sort of focusing on their adventures in the book, which uh, I'm currently just editing. So that's the current project. Awesome. Awesome. So um, obviously then you've just done, uh, you've done a couple of audio dramas now. You did uh, uh, the one with, uh, was it Vox? No. That's not. The yes. Time. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. No. Sorry. Um, yep. you'll, you'll have to forgive me. I, I, I had a, I had a car accident a few years ago and I've got a little bit of brain damage. So my uh, memory is absolutely atrocious. No, you managed to remember it more or less exactly. And it's um, not even in English. It's in Latin. So yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and then you did, uh, and then you did the, uh, the Perturabo one, which is the one we yes. love. Um, uh, on, and, um, obviously that's how, how different is it writing? an audio drama compared to writing, uh, you know, the equivalent, um, story. It is, it is quite, yeah, it's quite a difference. Um, it's, it's a bit of a sea change initially because you have to learn to let the audio as in the, the character's dialogue do the heavy lifting for you. Um, and it's also interesting because it's changed over times within the studio itself. So when I did Fox Tenebris, um, it was sort of, uh, the characters obviously were designed to be doing most of the talking, but there's still quite a lot of the narrator just doing what you have in all stories, really, mm -hmm. uh, describing the surroundings and the fighting, all that sort of stuff. Whereas nowadays, the shift that Black Library has undertaken is that they're specifically trying to do radio play style audio dramas, which means no narrator. It's literally all just um, spoken, which... I have yet to do, and it sounds incredibly intimidating. But uh, yeah, that's that's the style they've gone for. I think uh, Titans Bane, which is uh, Chris Dow's next audio drama about a tank crew of a shadow sword. I think that is going to be one of the first all the way through just audio. Uh, sorry, just sort of spoken character speaking, as opposed to a narrator adding bits of color text, which is very interesting. Yeah, I saw um, that sale at the. Um at the new year's open day was it or was it the warhammer 40k it's been on sale at one of the open days yes um, but i haven't yeah. picked it up yet yeah um i have yet to listen to it but apparently it's amazing and i can't wait um so yeah it's it's very different because you focus you learn to focus on the the character's dialogue and you try and cut back on the narration and then you also have things like you have to bear in mind the sound effects obviously so you add in in the script itself you put in you know orcs roaring or boltifier or whatever and you want to try and get that atmosphere right it also helps to do stuff like just read it out loud to yourself which is weird and sounds strange especially to the people that live next door to you but um <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah a bit but uh it it makes sense when you think about it because you know this is you have to divest yourself of the idea that in any way what you're writing is going to be on the page it's all audio and therefore how you actually write things doesn't matter because it's how they deliver it is is the key to it right okay um awesome um so when you write an audio drama do you get an idea of of who might be voicing the characters uh, at all um i i think the more experienced audio drama writers do i just have done it so infrequently that i didn't realize i could probably just ask who they're gonna think to cast um i know some of the authors um supply sort of directives with the draft so they say uh in my mind this character is like this and you know they often even give uh say a famous actor or someone that they think they can sort of base them oh, off a bit right. um to kind of help with the casting and stuff like that i i've never the two that i've done i've not had any sort of interaction with 
the actual audio studio um, or the cast or anything. I just let them handle it because I thought that was just, you know, what they did and didn't really think about the fact that as the author, I can probably interact a bit more and give some more directives. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll think about that more next time. If yeah, I, yeah, because I was going to ask, do you provide guidance about the character, how the character talks and their motivations and characteristics to help the voice actor? Yes. Uh, well, yes, other ones do, and I should do. I just didn't sort of think about that initially. Um, but yeah, the uh, I think it's fairly standard practice for the, the author to add a little bit, sort of page or two, just sort of how they see the character, how they see them speaking and talking and uh, just general directions like that, because that will definitely help the, the cast when it comes to the recording, I think. So, um, yeah, in the future, I shall try and do that. <laughs> yeah, I was actually listening to um, the Perturabo, uh one in the car. and My nana was with me. We were taking out. I can't remember where. Yep. And she just said, isn't that what's his name off the archers? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is. Um, yeah, I, I had no idea until uh, I was told later on that uh, I've shamefully now I've forgotten his name as well, but he plays oh, Adam. I have. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, which I think is pretty cool because, you know, the Archers is massive. Yeah. Uh, it's been running for decades. So um, I was pretty excited when I found that out. But uh, yeah, I had no idea initially. Uh, again, I think if I'd actually asked, then they probably would have told me. But uh, being a naive young audio drama writer who's only done two before, I just kind of let them do their thing and hope for the best. And thankfully, I think I got the best. So yeah. So you've got a you've got um have you got any more audio dramas coming up or is it? Uh... Um, I have not got any officially at the moment. I have spoken for a while about doing um, an audio drama that uh, the idea is that it would be an Imperial Navy Void Fighter Squadron. So um, we've seen the Imperial Navy's atmospheric aircraft like mm -hmm. Thunderbolts and Lightning and, you know, Double Eagle, that sort of stuff. But I don't think we've ever had a story that talks about, uh, I think, Fury interceptors and stuff that's, uh, you know, they fight in space. They come out of the capital ships and they engage enemy fighters and they bomb enemy capital ships and do all that sort of stuff in, in the Void Warfare. So I've been thinking for a while about trying to do sort of a pilot or a crew of one of these fighters. Um, which I think would work well for audio because, you know, you'd get the engines and the laser beams and it would be all sort of Star Wars-y TIE fight type stuff. Yeah, despite, yeah. The fact you, despite the fact you can't hear anything in space, but yeah. we'll just, you know, that doesn't matter. I think uh, so I'd, I'd like to do that, but that's one of those projects that I keep talking about and getting pushed back by sort of the more immediate stuff. So at some point I'd like to, but we'll see. Yeah, I can think of only one time that they really actually covered that and that was only to support a space marine. Who right, jumped on the back of one and it flew him over to the enemy ship so he could board ah, it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that would have potential, but we shall see. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so um, a lot of people do find, you know, 40k books to be a bit tad predictable and some actually refer to them as bolter porn. Mm -hmm. um, when you write, do you try to deliver something more original or do you try and do something that keeps the regular readers, you know, what they what they expect in the terms of the just actiony stuff although i've read your um, stuff so i know i know i know the i, I think i know the answer <laughs> i think the sort of the reader base is so large for black library there's so many people that read the books i think it's very difficult to pin down when you know something is too much of this or that i think every author just wants to tell the best sort of story that they can tell uh, i know that personally i feel i mean i've never been told a include more action or b cut back on the action really not in terms of a broad plot sense um i think everyone is in for a balance in terms of 
it as a 40k story unless it's something specific like say you know the eisenhorn trilogy where it's very much cloak and dagger they tend to be 90 percent you know they're based around some sort of combat scene or action or military engagement um which you know i love writing so i love putting that in i think i was quite conscious of it with red tithe because it was the first one that i wrote you know it was my own plot and i came up with it myself yeah uh, i wanted to strike the balance so i think there's deliberately no Space Marine versus Chaos Space Marine until about the halfway point. So I can say, ah, look at all this build-up. But, um, <clears> yeah, I, I, I don't that. think... Yeah. I don't think that it's something that writers go into consciously. I don't think they say, oh, I need to do more action or less action here. I think they just want to tell the story they want to tell. And some people might think that wherever that particular story is too much of one or too much of the other, but that's all down to personal interpretation. So it's not something that you know, people should really not something that other authors of should worry too much about. Um, as long as they're producing something that they're happy with, then go for it. Awesome. Now, obviously, you've written a lot of forty k and Age of Sigma. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and you just done your first Heresy story, which is the yep. first Rob audio drama. And um, was that a different mindset to get into, or was it something you could uh, approach differently? Um, it was fairly easy to get into because, um, you know, I have read the heresy. Sadly, I've not read all of it. I'm not as up to scratch as a lot of people are. But, I, yeah, I do have that basis. And also just because of the background, you know, I, I knew the heresy law having grown up with it. I used to love the um, Index Astartes White Dwarf articles, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they chronicled each Space Marine chapter in their history. And you know, I used to love reading about ones like the Iron Warriors and stuff, things like the Iron Cage uh, campaign. You know, I read about that when I was like 10 or something. So I had that basis of the legions pre-existing before the chapters in the warbands that broke off them post-heresy. And in that sense, no, I don't, I don't think it was that difficult because we already have such a rich foundation because of all the other heresy books. We can see the legions in action pre-heresy and how, you know, how they existed prior to the schism, which either tainted them or set them against each other. So uh, I think it was just a case of tapping into all that previous work, which laid their groundwork, the basis for, you know, how they interact with each other. Um, and then I guess the 41st millennium version is sort of just an afterthought, really, if you're focusing on that. Mm. Okay. Um, so moving on to concentrate on the iron warriors a little bit because that's what the focus of the main uh, the main focus of this episode is all about and yep. what the things we brought you on for so your third story that i think was published was um an iron warrior story in 40k it was indeed yes yes um, so that was quite a good one i remember from the uh i, I meant to reread it this weekend to, ready for this but i haven't had a chance Okay. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I asked specifically to write about it. The the brief was just Chaos Space Marine short stories. So I, I actually did two for the advent a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. One was a um, Angels of Ecstasy, I think it was. So Slanishy, Renegade Space Marines. And then the other one was the Iron Warriors because they are alongside the Night Lords, my favorite uh, traitor legion. Um yeah, so I asked to write that specifically. I realized that there'd never really been a story about uh, a warpsmith who, as a character, it's a relatively new sort of archetype, um, the idea of these sort of corrupt tech marines, which mm-hmm. I thought just would fit perfectly with the Iron Warriors. So um, I just took it from there, really. And yeah. So, I mean, what was the approach to, 
you know, was it different approaching the Legion from the other side of the heresy uh, and writing about them uh, before they fell to chaos compared to what you had Yes. Done? Yes, definitely, because you don't... I think the, the thing which I realised most clearly on when I started writing the audio drama was that I didn't want to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, we all know what happens to these guys. They turn traitor and, you know, turn on their brothers and become the bad guys. That wouldn't be the best way to approach the story, I don't think. You have to try and take it from a standpoint of you don't know what's coming and these guys are who they are. You don't overemphasize um, certain traits which become clearer and clearer as the setting progresses. So stuff like the bitterness, which is always talked about relating to the Iron Warriors and um, how unhappy they are with their treatment during the Great Crusade. Mm -hmm. That, when I wrote the audio drama, that idea is still developing. So although it's well established in the 41st millennium and its nucleus is there in the Great Crusade, it's not something that I wanted to lean too massively on, which is why, to give some spoilers, I guess, um, Percy Rabo himself is... um, chastising his warriors when they are openly inciting the Imperial Fists. Because everyone knows, oh, the Iron Warriors and Imperial Fists, they hate each other. They do, but at this stage, they don't hate each other half as much as they would in the future, if mm. you get me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it would be a bit silly and gimmicky to have them at each other's throats. And it's nice to remind people that actually there was a time when you know they used to more or less get on and then that deteriorated over time. Mm. So, I mean, the Primarchs themselves are considered sort of demigods. So um, did this pose a challenge when writing Stone and Iron? It was quite intimidating because they are such, well, they are the biggest characters in the setting alongside the Emperor. You know, they're, they're huge uh, in every sense of the word. But uh, I guess I was sort of eased in at the shallow end in a sense because I wasn't writing about Perturaba really from his point of view at all. It was um, all the Iron Warrior scenes are from uh, Ferrix, who uh, is actually the character from uh, Blood and Iron, the 41st Millennium short story, who I then cheekily retrograded. Oh, yeah, yeah there's, there's a little link there. He is He's the tech marine um, in the audio drama who then becomes the warpsmith by um, the short story. In my mind, I'd love to, you know, do one or two Ferrix short stories every advent calendar and then in about three or four years have a, you know, like an omnibus of Ferrix adventures. <laughs> but uh, that's another one of those songs I might just never get around to. But uh, the, the audio drama is more or less locked to his point of view and it's how he views Perturabo, which is a lot easier than writing about how Perturabo views everyone else because I can vaguely get myself into the mindset of how I would react if there was a demigod leading me into battle, whereas it's a lot of a, or it's a far greater struggle to get into the mindset of the demigod who's doing the one leading into battle, if it makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, having that distance from it helped me to write the story in a sense because, um, yeah, it's how I would react to Perturabo as opposed to how um, what his inner thoughts and feelings are, which we don't really discuss. We discuss it via his dialogue, but we don't know what he's actually thinking specifically. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, this was sort of like, um, in a way, quite unusual having the, the Iron Warrior, well, not unusual having the Iron Warriors and the and the Imperial Fist together, but having them get on. Well, not get on, but... <laughs> not kill each other. Not kill each other. <laughs> There'd be some respect. 
middle bit. Um, but considering that the, the two legions are, are actually considered, you know, two sides of the same coin by a lot of people, what was the appeal about writing about them together? Um, I think that was a little bit sort of instinctive on my part in the same way that I chose the Night Lord to be the uh, antagonists in Red Tithe for the Karkaradans. I guess, you know, it's just rule of cool initially because you say, wow, these guys are kind of like what's going to happen when they face each other off. Um, I guess when it's uh, more established and rivalry, the way you have it with the Iron Warriors and the Imperial Fists, there's a danger that, you know, it's a bit cliche gimmicky because other people have done it. But at the same time, I sort of wanted to take the opportunity to have a go myself at looking at these two um, opposed and similar legions because, you know, they are a fascinating dynamic between the two of them. Um, and, yeah, I just want the opportunity to explore that in a Great Crusade setting, which really isn't something that, you know, is going to come along every day in terms of... Uh, when people ask me to write things at, at Black Library. So I wanted to tell uh, as much of a classic Iron Warrior story as I could, and I needed the Imperial Fists to help me do that. Awesome. And it, it is a different take on them, to be honest, together. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> it's, 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 it's different enough that it's, yeah, I like that, you know, as opposed to, oh, it's the, it's the Iron Warriors versus the Imperial Fists again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going into it, if I if I took the plunge and said I want to write Imperial Fists and Iron Warriors, that in itself, you know, could be seen as a little bit of a cliche. But I didn't then want to um, over egg that by then having them just, you know, ending up fighting each other or something like that. It was the realization that I could use this as an opportunity to say, oh, actually, let's explore the mindset they had for one another when things have turned pretty sour, but they are still a fair bit distanced from outright conflict. Mm. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that is the interesting angle on the story itself, which makes it worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. I, I do think it's a worthwhile story. So, <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> good so what kind of background reading did you do for the for the audio drama um, to try and get into the mind of the Iron Warriors? Um, did, you, um, did you speak to Graham McNeil and Guy Haley for their viewpoints at all? Or? I did not speak to them, uh, partly because I'm probably still a bit too scared to directly approach such <laughs> such August authors. But uh, no, I did read um, Hammer of Olympia and uh, reread Storm of Iron, which you know is seminal in terms of well, it's just a great 40k novel, let alone the Iron Warriors. Yeah. Um, so between the two of them, yeah, pretty pretty well prepared. Um, I felt, and then I'd also gone back over the reading of sort of the old. The old background stuff so things like the, the index of studies which i first read when i was a kid about the iron warriors and i love the fact that um the battle of the iron cage is described in the index of studies articles for both the iron warriors and the imperial fists and the description and even the outcome is totally different in both because it's obviously using the unreliable narrator and it's how they view it so in the iron warriors account of the iron cage they trick dawn and decimate his legion and more or less get revenge for the imperial palace whereas in the imperial fists version they dawn nobly sacrifices a large part of his legion in order to accept the new changes brought on by gilliman uh, with the new sort of the codex style of chapters and they give the iron warriors a bloody nose and all that sort of stuff so yeah they're, they're, going, that, they're going in as a, a as a legion and coming out as a chapter exactly so that in itself is an excellent example of how 40k relies sometimes on this this unreliable narrator um and how you can 
you can tie that sort of stuff up when when you write your own things because uh, who knows what the truth is really but yeah that sort of thing was what i read back in order to prep myself more or less awesome um so and and speaking about graham mcneil a lot of people see the iron warriors as his legion um as he's probably done the most to define them yeah um did you ever feel at all like you were his shadow was looming over you or did you just sort of get on with the job and um a little bit um it was it was mostly a case of get on with the job um it had been so long since i'd read storm of iron before i reread it that i felt as though there was a bit of a bit of distance there um and i think it's it's fairly well known now that black library authors aren't you know covetous as to who they write about they're actually often quite happy to have other people writing about the things which they write about because at the end of the day, it's all games workshop. And am I right in saying that, um, oh, I've forgotten which way it went, but uh, Dan Abnett wrote, um, is it Prospero Burns with the Space Wars? Yes. Um, in a deliberate attempt to, and he swapped that with another novel, who another, which was being done by another author, because people thought that they were going to be doing those opposite novels, but actually they decided to switch things up a bit. Um, sorry, that's, that's not very clear because I can't remember the other author, but uh, it was a deliberate attempt to get rid of the idea that, oh, this author writes about these guys. So, again, not having Graham write all of the Ultramarines, Horus Heresy stuff, for example, um, because, you know, it's, I guess it's interesting having other people having a crack at it. Um, so, yeah, there was a bit, there was a bit of, uh, I definitely wanted to make sure that I stuck with the groundwork he'd laid mm-hmm. um, and how they sort of develop into the 41st millennium. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think that any Black Library author is, would feel too beholden to previous work. Yeah, awesome. Um, so in Graham's Magnus book, which he wrote, we have Pert Rabo in there as well. Um, and he's sort of more optimistic and positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but in yours, he's started to become cynical and jaded uh, as he is at the end. Um, so, I mean... What kind of stuff do you think he sort of has been through to kind of destroy that optimism? Because your story is set only a short period of time after Graham's. Mm-hmm. Um, I think perhaps one of the interesting things about the Iron Warriors is that the destruction of their good character traits, if you will, was brought on through the slow grind of incessant warfare and loss rather than a single you know, like Magnus' uh, revelation moment where he sort of realizes something or does something that triggers vast amounts of change. Um, I think that aside from Dawn being the one to get to design the Imperial Palace's defenses over Perturaba, there's not, you know, as many singular moments that you can deliberately point to with the Iron Warriors that causes their turn to heresy. But I think that's their strength because... In reality, normally when someone ends up doing something wrong, it's a lot of small steps that have taken them there, as opposed to you know a single grand revelation or misstep that has caused um, difficulties they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't I don't think that I could I could point out a single thing between the two novels that I can say ah this is what made Perdurabo into a bad guy. It was stuff which you see in the audio drama the rivalry with the fists being put into conflicts that are inglorious and simply result in you know the clinical expenditure of many material against enemies that no one else really cares about 
is is really I'd say the what leads Perserada down his his darker path. Okay, awesome. So when you actually got to listen to the audio drama, was it what you envisioned envisioned it to be? Yes, um, more or less. The I wasn't because I didn't know the casting beforehand. I didn't know what to expect in terms of you know the actual the voices, but I think. By the end of it, I was fully invested with um, Perserado's character. I think he delivers the ending brilliantly. Uh, it's you know, it's sort of a case of did I write that because yeah, <laughs> it came out so well, and it's it's a bit removed from the script to the actual um, you know hearing it delivered orally. So that in itself is is exciting, and yeah, I can't really imagine how it could be improved upon. They certainly the studio nailed that one, I think. Uh, and it's always fun having that as the finished product because uh, writing is generally very solitary. It's you and your editor at best normally. So knowing there's a team behind it is, is quite exciting. Awesome. So um, so when it comes down to it, who do you think will win in a straight-up fight between the Iron uh, and the Imperial Fists? Oh, no. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, make the claim and I'm going to stick by it for the rest of my life. I, at heart, am a loyalist. So I prefer the Imperial Fists, but in a battle, I'm going to give it to the Iron Warriors. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I think I might side with you on that one as well. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're just willing to take more attrition. Exactly. And it's the experience. You know, they've got most of them at this stage in the 41st millennium aren't, um, you know, the veterans of the long war, but they've still got those in there. So if it was a modern day fight, I'd give it to the Iron Warriors. If it was the heresy era, then probably still give it to the Iron Warriors because like you say, the the amount of resources they're willing to throw in um is is exceptional. But yeah. But don't tell the Inquisition I said that. No problem. <laughs> so um all right. Now I know it's not heresy, but I love the Charge Hadron's book you've books you've written so far, the shorts and the uh, Red Tithe. Um Thank you. and this show actually goes out a few days prior to the release of Outer Dark. Hooray. And I guess personally, I'd like to ask you if this book will address the stuff that's sort of gone on in the wider 40k universe since the first book came out. So how will the chapter react to the splitting of the galaxy asunder by the um, the big warp storm, the Citrix? Uh, I can't remember the name. <laughs> the last... Me neither, don't worry. <laughs> and will they be getting Primaris Brothers? Um, well, I can categorically say that this novel will not be dealing with that because it's set a hundred years before the Gathering Storm. Still, <laughs> ah. um, so yeah, the first one, Red Tithe, is set in oh, uh, eight hundred and seventy-five, I think, uh, Millennium Forty-One. So, if the Gathering Storm is nine 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 Millennium Forty-One, then it's about 125 years before the Gathering Storm events. Ah. And then the sequel, so Outer Dark, is set 10 years on from Red Tithe, but, you know, that's still 110, 15 years prior to the Big Bang, if you will. Uh, and interestingly, still 15 years from the Bad of War. So that might be something to note. Ooh. But, uh, yeah, in, in my mind, if this continues to be successful then really long-term future, I would like to, you know, go into uh, The Gathering Storm and then right up to date with uh, Indomitus. So, you know, sort of 100 years after The Gathering Storm. But that would be very much, you know, a long-term plan and dependent on how things go, just writing generally. Um, if I did a third one, then that would probably, again, be set maybe a decade after Outer Dark. So still 100 years prior to 
the cool stuff that happens later on. Um, as for how they react to deba- that, that's I... debatable depending on your point of view for some people. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I like it. I like it, but I do too. There's a lot of cool stories just waiting to be written about that stuff. So um, yeah. watch that space, definitely. Yeah, people complaining you don't move on the story, and then when they do, oh, I know, I know. I was, uh, to be honest, I was a firm don't move on the story guy because um, I took the view that uh, I think Aaron espoused it best, that it's 40K as a setting, not a story. So you put stories into that test setting, but the setting itself doesn't really change. But clearly, yeah, clearly the the weight of uh, the fans' desire was behind moving it forward. And, you know, I'm happy that they did because actually so much is now, you know, there for the taking in terms of interesting things to write about. I mean, obviously I'm biased because I'm getting to write a Primaris story, which I'm enjoying immensely. But um, yeah, as for the Karkaradans, how they respond to all that remains to be seen. I've not really thought about it too much and it's not been discussed uh, background-wise. So if I do cover that, which, you know, I'd like to at some point, but it won't be for a little while yet. Okay, and uh, I think um, Red Tide got quite good reviews. Um there were some bad ones as well. And, and how do you deal with those, both, both the good and the bad? Um, I think, you know, sometimes the bad galvanizes you. Uh, and and certainly there's, absolutely there's room for, quotation marks, bad reviews that are uh, constructive, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've Especially for me, you know, I've not been doing this very long. I am still a new writer, absolutely. I have a lot still to learn. I'm, you know, eager to take things on board. And I think I am learning with every single thing I write. Uh, how to do things better so uh, constructive criticism is um not only good it's essential i'd say so that is good uh non-constructive to be honest i don't think i've received too much um of that it doesn't really bother me particularly uh it's, although i do see all these comments about jet bikes but i, I i've <laughs> not yet read anything in you what you've written about jet bikes I've literally never written about jet bikes in my life i once i once made a throwaway comment online that i thought it would be cool if the characters had a jet bike squad because and i have defended this in the background because they scavenge stuff because they are of the heresy era um you know spoiler alert i don't think that's that's not unknown at that period uh, should clarify they didn't exist during the heresy in their current form but they have stuff from the heresy hence the armor you know they have lots of heresy era armor um so in my mind, I think it'd be really rule of cool if there were, you know, just five of them with jet bikes and there'd be a squad of them and they would just kill stuff and that would be amazing. However, apart from suggesting that tentatively, I've never actually written about it and there's no guarantee I ever will. So it's it's topical at the moment because the custodians now have jet bikes. So 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 yeah. so the, the so the nickname that some people give you jet bike Jesus is not <laughs> I I think that was like that happened over a period of a week and <laughs> I think most people now no longer realize where it came from because it, it was pretty random. I think the shark guy epitaph is, is more common now. So and not that I'm against jet bikes. I think they're awesome. And I'll probably maybe now just include jet bikes because I can. We'll see. <laughs> you should. Okay, thank you. I shall uh, take this as official permission. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's about an hour we've been talking. So I should probably wrap yeah. it up there. So let, yeah, you, sure get, let you get your tea. Yeah, that's that's time, isn't it? Yeah, should should probably focus on eating as opposed to just writing more, which is probably a good idea. <laughs> good. Yes, it is. It is. I was at um, Octocon last year. Uh, right. Dan Abnett was the uh, guest of honor, and um, oh. so was um, Nick, his uh, wife, and and uh, one of the panels. Someone was saying, "Do you, do you ever forget to eat?" Because 
<laughs> you know, he's well known for writing so much and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, his wife just short chipped in and she was like, yes, quite often. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, it's how we maintain the sort of starving artist's appearance. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was fantastic to talk to you, Robbie. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's been great. Flew to I. <laughs>